please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. With a looming recession, is now a good time to consider investing in dividend stocks? How would you spend $65 billion? Well, we can't imagine what you'd do, but we'll tell you how Warren Buffett and Berkshire plan to spend theirs. And guess who's back? Bob Iger at Disney, that's who. This is Investing Insights. Welcome to the new Investing Insights. I'm your host, Ruth Saldana. Let's get started with a look at your Morningstar headlines. Berkshire Hathaway deserves a lot more credit for the investments that it's made this year. For the past decade, investors have complained that the insurer has allowed excess cash buildup. But now, Berkshire is spending. The company is on pace to use $12 billion on acquisitions and $53 billion on stock investments in this year. Now, Morningstar believes that Berkshire will get a lot of value out of the acquisition of the insurance company Allegheny in a deal that was completed last month. The insurer is now part of the broader operations, something that we think the market doesn't fully appreciate. While Berkshire shares have outperformed the broader market this year, they continue to trade at a significant discount to what we think the stock is worth. We think that's due to many factors, including the fact that the market is not giving Berkshire enough credit for the Allegheny acquisition or the capital that the insurer has committed to equities this year. Dick's Sporting Goods rallied big in the third quarter, shaking off the threat of slowing consumer spending due to inflation. The company beat Morningstar's Thames store sales estimates while continuing its run of strong comparative sales growth in each of the previous October ending quarters. Dick's also matched our gross margin forecast while generously topping our operating margin estimates. Like many apparel and footwear retailers, Dick's entered the quarter with elevated inventories, which led to markdowns to clear product, hurting year-over-year merchandise margins. Despite continuing inventory issues, we view the situation as manageable given last year's product shortages and strong sales, and the usual holiday inventory sell-through. We expect to increase our $78 fare estimate of what we think Dick's stock is worth and still view the shares as overvalued. Visa announced that current CEO Alfred Kelly will step down and Ryan McInerney will take over at the start of February. Kelly, who has been the CEO since 2016, will assume the role of executive chairman at that time. We have a generally favorable view of Kelly's tenure, though we believe that the company's wide moat is the dominant factor behind its strong performance. McInerney, who came to Visa from JP Morgan, has served as president at Visa since 2013. We think Visa's decision to go with an insider and Kelly's continued presence as executive chairman suggests that the company will largely maintain its recent strategic course, and we see that as the right move. We will maintain our $229 fair value estimate for the stock. In a stunning move on Thanksgiving weekend, Walt Disney's board reinstalled Bob Iger as the CEO of the firm, with Bob Shapek stepping down immediately. Iger signed a two-year deal to serve as the CEO to set the strategic direction for the firm and help find a successor. But what does all of this mean? Morningstar Research Services' Neil Macker covers the stock, and he's here today to tell us what he thinks. Neil, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. First up, what happened at Disney? And more importantly, why? 
So I think there are a number of issues that have happened. Number one, um, and, and this is overall within the streaming market, the streaming market has moved from a, a focus on just premier subscriber growth to also looking at the bottom line as well. And, and Disney's had one of their largest losses on a DTC on their streaming business last quarter, the quarter that I just reported here. Um, now, while management said that the you know uh, losses would come down in the next fiscal year, fiscal 2023, um, you know. The market was not happy with that. Um, a few days later, uh, Bob Chapik then announced some um, layoffs for the company, and, and so that was sort of there. And sort of like there was, it was bad sort of management in terms of announcements and, and how to deal with the street. Secondly, Chapik has had a couple of public uh, relations issues. Number one with the "Don't Say Gay" bill in Florida, and then number two, a public dispute with the Black Widow star Scarlett Johansson. And, and number three, he's just not Bob Iker. I think is one of the other problems he has. He doesn't have the emotional intelligence, the ability to to soft do the soft soft skills that Bob Iger had, and that made him so good at his job, particularly when dealing with Hollywood, which is a big part of being the Disney CEO. Now, Bob Iger has delayed his retirement multiple times. Now he's back. Will he likely stick to his two-year contract this time around, do you think? Uh, I think that's one of the things that's definitely up in the air. Um, you know, one of the things that's happened with the Chapik thing is that the number of people that they thought might become CEO later have left the firm. So it's not necessarily certain that they have the person in-house and there may be Iger spending more time on getting the ship right and, and getting, you know, Disney employees back up in morale and, and working with the street and sort of understanding that, that he pushes out the idea of his successor. So I would not be shocked if he's there for three years or even four necessarily down the road. What does all of this mean for Disney shareholders and your expectation for the stock? Yeah, so I think in general, um, you know, our expectations haven't really changed for the stock. We still think that the stock is, you know, fairly undervalued at this point here, um, and a pretty good entry point for longer-term investors. Um, for shareholders, I think they're just more. Um, more confidence in, in the leadership team. Obviously, Chapik was a new CEO. Um, when you look at somebody like Iger, who had been there for about 15 years and had a tremendous amount of sex, there's there. But you know the, the underlying problems of Disney that is facing every media company, which is this transition to a streaming future, are, are still there. And you know we're still entering an area where advertising is soft, the linear market for people like ESPN and things like that. That channels, that um, networks are declining in terms of subscribers there. So all those issues are still there. It's just that shareholders, you know, if you've been a long-term shareholder, long from shareholder and Disney, you know, you probably have a little more confidence now in the management team and their ability to, to deal with this transition going forward. And then hopefully Iger put somebody in who has, you know, a better mix of skills than let's say Chapik did and can help with that transition down the road as well. Great. Thank you for joining us today with your perspectives, Neil. Thank you for having me. There's several reasons why dividend players are often considered defensive. These are firms that have the financial strength in terms of both cash flow and earnings to both initiate and maintain a dividend. In general, a low interest rate environment is considered favorable for equity investments in general, not just dividend stocks. Morningstar.com's Director of Content, Susan Jubinski, chatted with Morningstar Investment Management's David Harrell to discuss the pros and cons of investing in dividend-paying stocks during bear markets and recessions. Take a look. I'm Susan Jubinski with Morningstar, and welcome to Dividend Stock Deep Dive. On today's episode, we're turning the tables. I'm interviewing David Harrell, who is the regular host of Dividend Stock Deep Dive. And today we're going to discuss the pros and cons of investing in dividend-paying stocks during bear markets and recessions. 
So, David, it's nice to see you today Great on to the opposite side okay. of the table. Great um, to be over here. Yeah. So, so let's talk a, a little bit broadly at the start. Um, dividend stocks are often referred to as defensive investments. Mm -hmm. Why? Sure. So there's several reasons why dividend payers are often considered defensive. And the first really comes down to the type of stocks that pay dividends. These are firms that have the financial strength uh, in terms of both cash flow and earnings to both initiate and maintain a dividend. And often these are companies, they're more mature, uh, they're in industries such as uh, utilities, uh, consumer staples, energy, healthcare, uh, and these are all industries that by themselves are generally considered somewhat um, defensive. Uh, the second is, you know, if you think about if you've assembled a dividend portfolio or there's a rule-based dividend index, think about the types, types of companies that aren't in that in, in that index or portfolio. And that's some of your, uh, you know, your big name tech or um, internet firms generally aren't there. So you don't have those firms in, in your portfolio. And the third thing is the dividends themselves, uh, that even if stock prices are down, you still have this stream of spendable income coming in. Now, there's one thing I want to be very clear here, though, is that, about, is that there's often this saying that, well, dividends... Uh, mute volatility uh, because the dividend payment offsets a price decline. Uh, so like if you have a stock that was at $100, it's declined to $90, but you got a $5 dividend payout, hey, you're only down $5. And what investors sometimes forget is that when stocks go ex-dividend, on their ex-dividend date, their prices are actually adjusted downward uh, by the exact dividend amount. Uh, so dividends are great, but there's no free lunch there. So what you do see is uh, this, this price decline when you get your dividend payout. Uh, so great to have, but uh, it doesn't offset in, in the same way that people think they do. Um, so as to whether or not dividends are defensive in practice, uh, it sort of depends. Um, Amy Arnott, who's a portfolio strategist for Morningstar, recently looked at six recessionary periods going back to 1980. And what she found was that in three of those periods, dividend stocks outperformed the broad market. And in three, the broad market outperformed dividend stocks. Uh, so yes, you think of them as defensive, but not necessarily, at least not in all recessionary environments. Well, let's talk a little bit about how dividend-paying stocks as a group have performed during 2022's bear market. Um, dividend stocks as a group have performed very well on a relative basis in 2022. Uh, you know, both uh, just in terms of total return for the year and then in terms of month-to-month -month volatility. Uh, now, September was a bad month for U.S. stocks in general, including dividend payers, uh, but they both, the broad market and dividend stocks had a strong October. Uh, so where things stand right now, the broad U.S. market is down uh, nearly 18% on a total return basis for the year to date. And uh, a dividend index like the Dow Jones U.S. Select Dividend Index is down less than a single percentage point. Uh, and there's some dividend indexes that are actually slightly in the black for the year to date. Uh, so you're looking at a performance differential of about 17 percentage points, which is really huge. Uh, so 2022 dividend stocks have outperformed. 
So David, let's unpack those returns a little bit. Are there particular sectors that are dividend rich that perhaps contributed most meaningful to that difference in returns? Well, well sure. As you know, the only uh, U.S. market sector that's in the black for the year to date is energy. I believe the Morningstar uh, U.S. energy sector is up 66% for the year-to-date on a total return basis. And so you're finding a lot of, of dividend payers with that index. And then you have other dividend-rich sectors that have performed well relative to the broad market, even though they're still down year-to-date. Uh, but when we think about 2022 performance, I think we're sort of going back to what I was saying earlier about what are the stocks that you don't own in a dividend portfolio. Uh, because what we're seeing right now is, um, you know, if you look over the past decade, the U.S. equity market was really driven by the performance of some of like the Thane stocks, for example, uh, these non-dividend paying, growthier um, internet and tech companies uh, that were really driving uh, stock market returns. And it was during that period, it was actually difficult for dividend indexes and portfolios to keep up because they didn't own those stocks simply because they didn't pay pay dividends for the most part. And um, what we're seeing now is something completely different. In 2022, for example, um, Meta Platforms, uh, around a year ago, a little more than a year ago, had a market cap of more than a trillion dollars. That market cap has declined to less than 300 billion at this point. Uh, so huge declines in some of those stocks uh, that's driving the U.S. market down. Dividend indexes and portfolios generally don't own those stocks. So I think that's sort of the biggest driver of the, the strong relative performance of dividend stocks in 2022. Okay, so David, let's pivot and take a look ahead. Um, some market watchers are expecting the U.S. economy to officially slip into a recession next year. Others are expecting a soft landing. Um, let's talk a little bit about what role dividend stocks play in a recession. Sure. So no one has a crystal ball, but clearly the state of the U.S. economy is going to have a huge impact on equity markets uh, going forward. Uh, but I think it's important to consider different scenarios and how they might play out and that different types of dividend stocks might perform or react differently in these different environments. Uh, for example, if inflation remains high, uh, certain firms that are able to pass those price increases on uh, to, to, their, to their customers are, are, are going to perform well, uh, you know, consumer staples and so on. But um, other, other types of firms and industries that with more competitive pricing structures, such as telecoms, for example, uh, might not have that same ability to pass on those price increases. Um, if we are in an extended recessionary period, uh, you know, firms or you know, utilities, healthcare, uh, things that people can continue to consume, uh, even in a recessionary standpoint, you have to heat your house, mm -hmm. you know, you, you're not going to stop con uh, consuming healthcare and mm -hmm. so on, uh, might perform well. Um, and then if the Fed's rate increases have the intended effect, and we have that soft landing, and the economy is stabilized, and then I think firms like banks and other firms and industries that are leveraged to economic growth uh, would benefit from that. So we really have you know, a variety of, of outcomes here. I wish, certainly wish I knew what they were <laughs> going to be. Uh, but I think it points to the idea that uh, you know, if, you're, if you're building a dividend portfolio, uh, you do want to have sort of have it built in such a way to uh, maybe respond to each of these as opposed to any single one or uh, be loaded up on a specific industry or sector uh, because if things don't go in that direction, uh, it could be problematic for you. 
And then lastly, let's talk a little bit about what role valuation, you know, mm -hmm. plays in all of this. You know, as we're talking today, um, dividend-rich energy stocks are, as a group, overvalued, according to Morningstar's metrics. Right. Utilities are a little undervalued, but not by much. So how mindful should investors be about what price they're paying for a dividend yield relative to a company's, you know, intrinsic value? Um, great question, because it's, I think it's too common for an income-focused investor to look at a stock's yield it's yielding 6%, it's yielding 7%, and make a purchase decision on that alone. And that can be problematic for several reasons. One is if you try to assemble a portfolio based on yield alone, uh, you're likely to end up with um, perhaps too many stocks or too high of a concentration in a particular sector or industry. Uh, another problem is the whole idea of a dividend trap, a stock that is has a high current yield because the market is already pricing in a dividend cut that hasn't been announced. Uh, and if you buy into that stock expecting that yield, you might not get that yield. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's a good thing to consider the, value, the valuation of, of, of any stock that you purchase. Uh, certainly the Morningstar equity research approach to investing is a fundamental one based on the idea of buying stocks that are selling at a uh, discount to their intrinsic value. And the Morningstar fair value estimate is one way to measure that. I think another thing for income investors to consider is not just the current yield of a stock, uh, but what sort of dividend growth do they expect? Uh, is it sort of, you know, is it sort of, you know, maxed out, or is this a company that continue, can continue to grow its dividend? Um, you know, one way to um, sort of estimate your future returns for a dividend-paying stock is to add the current dividend yield rate to the expected dividend growth rate. Uh, those two percentages together can sort of give you an idea or an estimate of future uh, total return of the stock. And if a stock is purchased at a discount uh, to its intrinsic value, you can also basically get a valuation tailwind, which adds to that percentage. So you can expect perhaps a then even higher total return. Well, David, thank you so much for your time today. This is wonderful perspective on what we've seen with dividend-paying stocks this year and maybe some things investors should be thinking about if they're buying dividend-paying stocks in the new year. We appreciate your time, and we'll see you back on this side of the table next month in Dividend Stock Deep Dive. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Susan and David. That's all for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Morningstar's YouTube channel to see new videos about market news, personal finance, and investment picks. Thanks to podcast producer Jake Bankerson, who puts the show together. I'm Ruth Saldana, an editorial manager at Morningstar. Thank you for watching Investing Insights. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from 
or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.